the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. The Supreme Court uh, making some important rulings on religious liberty and on Trump's tax returns over the last uh, 24 hours or so. Uh, Trump's tax returns today, uh, the subpoenas for tax returns, other financial records from Trump's personal accounting firm, subpoenas that were sent to third parties, not to the president himself. Supreme Court rejected Trump's argument that those subpoenas be quashed uh, referring, uh, remanding the matter to uh, lower court for dispensation. Um, however, I did hold that uh, Congress has no right to them. Prosecutors do uh, that. Uh, the congressional subpoenas uh, do not uh, require compliance, but uh, but uh, a prosecutor subpoena would if it meets the other standards. There's no special treatment for the president effectively. Um, so what that does is, again, practically push off any disclosure of uh, his personal financial records until after the election. And I think the juxtaposition of these cases is quite interesting. Because uh, one, uh, the case of the religious liberty cases that I referenced generally from the Supreme Court's uh, announced opinions yesterday and the President Trump decision uh, as it pertains to subpoenas for his financial records, because the latter is going to be covered much more widely, treated uh, with much more import than the former. The latter is about President Trump and his electoral prospects. That's important to the D.C. press corps. The religious liberty of Americans, much less so. And for uh, a discussion on those religious liberty cases, Our Lady of Guadalupe, as well as the uh, Little Sisters of the Poor cases. Uh, we're pleased to be joined again by Father Robert Sirico, who's the president and co-founder of the Acton Institute. That's Acton, A-C-T-O-N, Acton.org. Uh, uh, Father Sirico, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Delighted to be with you. Thanks for having me. So uh, let's take, uh, well, first of all, just my, my want to get your reaction to my commentary about uh, what that says about American yeah. culture, the importance of the Trump financial records case versus the no, Little you, Sisters you really of the Poor. You put your finger on it. Yeah. You put your finger right on it. And why is that the case? That's a, two things. Why is that the case? And what is the, the comparative impact of the two sets of legislation uh, or the rulings? Uh, it is the case because most of the media is so secular and has been affected by the mentality that necessitated this kind of legislation, by which I mean the legislation of the Blaine Amendments and the prejudice against the little sisters of the poor, of all people, for goodness sake, 
and the other religious liberty case, because the secular mentality is that the church is a threat, that what we want in our claim for religious liberty is to establish a theocracy. Okay, they have won that battle legislatively and culturally for the last 150 years or so. But the repeal or the, uh, the, the rulings of the court that come down now are going to change the entire atmosphere and the understanding of the Establishment Clause of the uh, Constitution. The Trump tax returns are going to be relative. I mean, it's going to be here today and gone tomorrow. I'm not even sure people are going to be terribly interested in, in it after the election unless Trump is reelected and then, you know, we're back to the rodeo. Uh, so I think you're, you're exactly right. Well, and, and so let's talk about the uh, two cases uh, the Supreme Court decided yesterday. Our Lady of Guadalupe I'm School. I'm taking them as three. I'm uh, taking okay. them as three because the week before there was the Blaine Amendment. Yes, right. Being, the uh, Montana School uh, Choice overturned. case. Right. So right. the Montana School uh, Choice case, then, Our Lady of Guadalupe School case, and then, of course, Little Sisters. Um, uh, talk right. to, to talk about uh, the importance of the uh, school cases, uh, you know, in terms of private uh, a denominational K through 12 education, and then we'll get to the Little Sisters as well. Right. Uh, well, what the school cases do, and and it, it has a, the the similar uh, effect, because what the school cases did was uh, to say that religious schools have the right to maintain their culture, and part of the maintenance of that culture is the selection of people who work within that culture, and that teachers are not just those who deliver facts, but those who promote faith, those who form a culture and an atmosphere. This is similar to the the, uh, Little Sisters case, which, by the way, is one of three cases now that they've won. Uh, And that says that the Little Sisters don't have to abide by the Obama uh, health care mandate that provides contraception uh, to employees under their insurance scheme. And, of course, the big... Megillah here is the blame, the repeal of the Blaine Amendments, which now says that uh, that if uh, tax credits are offered to citizens, they can't be denied to those citizens because those citizens choose to use them in religious institutions, uh, educational institutions. So you you have a cluster of three cases that uh, will open the sphere of religious liberty in this country, I think, in the way that the um, uh, Establishment Clause intended. Although um, there are some qualifications, I think, uh, with respect to the Little Sisters case in particular, in the uh, concurrence, Kagan and Breyer both said that the opt-out, the exception that the Trump administration provided because Obamacare gave the executive wide berth yep. in this, uh, may prove arbitrary and capricious, which uh, could read like an invitation to keep the little sisters in litigation. This could. I, I, I don't, in being enthusiastic for these, these uh, rulings, I don't say that there isn't going to be a lot of battling because the Blaine Amendments are the same thing. You know, I yeah. mean, that's Montana. It's a specific form of tax credit to religious institutions. So I think we're we're going to see a whole bunch of legislation, but it, it and, and litigation and argument in the public uh, sphere. 
but I think it gives a more solid footing to those who, who want religious liberty to be expanded in this country. Well, in addition to that, though, and just on the Little Sisters case, because the, capici- the capacious grant of authority, as Justice Thomas wrote, provided in Obamacare uh, to the executive, you get a new executive, you could get a new mandate. And and I guess that's what you got. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, and, right, and, and Trump right. giving the sisters a you know a different mandate or a, an exemption. Okay, well, he, and here's my other way to rain on your parade of optimism, and that okay. is, and, and I and I know the Acton Institute has opined on this, the uh, Bostock case, and uh, how the Bostock case runs headlong into these uh, expansions of religious liberty, particularly in K through twelve education, with Gorsuch himself in his uh, opinion in that case sort of uh, waving away uh, such concerns about uh, somebody in a, in a Catholic institution uh, coming out as LGBTQ and uh, being terminated and then litigating it. He just characterized a situation like that as a question for future cases. So even with these expansions in the Guadalupe School case right. and the Montana School Choice case, you still have the looming problem of Bostock, don't you? You, you do. And uh, I mean, this is what happens with court rulings, right? I mean, there's an invitation that will bring me. Uh, I, I think you could make this argument about the um, situation with um, Robertson and the previous abortion case mm-hmm. uh, that he's asking for more uh, more cases to be brought to the uh, to the Supreme Court for further clarification. So, no, this this is not. Um, uh, shall we say, an infallible and irrevocable pronouncement for all time, per omnia secula seculorum. You know, we're, we're in <laughs> a democratic society where we're going to battle these things out. But my point is that it gives us greater footing you know, in which to do that, some more solid legal ground because you have the precedence now. Um, there's, a, there's an interesting guest post over at the Gateway Pundit blog uh, by a woman named Civil Guardian. Uh, the uh, The gist of it is, there are no excuses for Christians to be inactive in the face of evil uh, with respect to so much of what's going on in this country. And uh, she sort of goes through some of the, uh, uh, the, the, the biblical references that Christians use to, to um, not participate meaningful in the cultural fight. God is in control, so they don't have to do anything, turn the other cheek, submit to the authorities, so, so on and so forth. And she uh, deconstructs those arguments in terms of you know yeah. con- contextual understanding of of scripture. W- what's your handle on uh, how aggressive the church has been, the Catholic Church specifically, and Christians in general in response to the threat that is present from those who would seek to uh, secularize the religious, frankly, subjugate the religious. And we'll pick it up right there with Reverend Robert Sirico of the Acton Institute when we return on the Dan Podcast. Welcome back. Before the break, I posed a question about Christians fighting back against the evil, really, that's going on in today's world, engaging in the battle over what kind of society in which we are going to live. 
and I wanted to get your view on it. I think the church has no alternative but to be engaged in the culture. I mean, that is what the principal doctrine of the Christian faith is all about, the incarnation of Christ. He comes into the world. He takes the world seriously. There's then the question of what issues we deal with and how we prudentially deal with them. So that we have to be engaged in the culture is one thing. That's a given. How we are engaged, and I think in that how question, there's good and there's bad. I think there's a lot of ineptitude on the part of religious leadership, especially when they don't understand economics to begin with. This I'll lay at the foot of the Catholic bishops historically because they've been hostile to free economies in in many respects. And also culturally and, how should we say it, just in terms of vocabulary and the disposition, the evangelicals have been blunt and at times too crass and too political, too uh, quick to line up with one political figure as the the kind of prophet who's going to lead us into the promised land. So I think we have to nuance the way we do these things with the greater sophistication of economics, a greater strategic sophistication to accomplish what we want to do, and a greater cultural familiarity with the language that the culture is using and making distinctions that say, look, it's true, I can't have an LGBTQ person who affirms this lifestyle teaching in an institution that doctrinally doesn't, but that doesn't mean I I have to hate gay people. It it, it has to do with saying, uh, of course all uh, black lives matter. Of course they do. That doesn't mean I have to support this institution, this this group called Black Lives Matter, which is Marxist and, and hostile to the family. Uh, And I think sometimes we let conservatives let themselves get caught in a corner and they're they're pictured and not always accurately as growling all the time and negative all the time. We have to we have to engage the culture in a way that understands its idiom so as to communicate to people what we mean in order to to reshape the culture. Mm -hmm. And and when the church um, sanctions uh, uh priests, I'm talking about the Catholic Church, by the way, which is yes. my particular focus as a Catholic, but it's not limited to Catholic right. Church, of course. Uh, when they, when you see them sanction a priest who uh, provide cultural commentary from the perspective of the catechism, as uh, did one Indiana priest, uh, Father Rothrock, about, uh, Black yes. Lives, about Black Lives Matter, the organization, and about people using, engaged yes. in violence and vandalism— and that uh, per, and that priest is sidelined by the the bishop in the, bishop, the archdi yeah. in the uh, diocese in which he which he serves. What does that say about? Uh, what does that tell Catholics about how courageous they should be in this moment? I, you're exactly right. I think uh, what Father did there was something that needed to be done. I, personally, if I were addressing it, I would have used different language, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the maggots and yeah. parasite language that was in it. I think that was unnecessary. I wonder if he'd be in this position if he didn't use that. But the thrust of what he said, if you just read it, was very solid. Uh, it was uh, exactly what needed to be said. He's a pastor. He he has the obligation to address himself to these, these questions. And I think what you have are uh, progressive bishops who uh, want to send messages to people. And of course, they're worried uh, about, you know, picket lines in front of the chancery again, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, so for reasons of their own making many times. Well, right. But, um, but again, then, um, 
and you, and you, I understand that you know the church is uh, governed by fallible human beings, and you remember right. that. But but you want to see you want to see people that are that are insulated and should be insulated to focus on shepherding us for the next world and not being particularly trapped by the popularity or the trappings of this world. And when you see something right. like that, like what happened to Father Rothrock, discouraging. It's, it's discouraging. discouraging. Yeah. Yeah. But let me say this, though. Uh, while it is discouraging, and I think wrong on the part of the bishop, although I have no, you know, it's his diocese. Uh, right. He's the pope in his diocese, so right. to speak. Right. Um, let me say that the leadership of these, uh, on these social questions needs to come not from clerics. Clerics, priests are under a particular obedience to the bishop that lay people are not. Right. Lay people, the, the bishop couldn't do anything to a lay person. If he, they did the identical thing, the bishop could disagree with it, but he couldn't suspend them or transfer them or, you know, put them in uh, the boondocks. Uh, I think lay people, and there are groups of lay people who are gathering together and saying, no. I mean, the, the entire pro-life movement is a lay movement, by the way, dominated by women, mm -hmm. uh, and it doesn't need to be led by priests or, or ministers. And I think uh, the, what we need to do as priests is provide a formation and understanding to these lay people, but these lay people need to be at the front lines because that's their vocation. That's that, not our vocation. I, no, I agree. Although, um, like the, the pro-life movement, you're, you're, of course, you're absolutely right about that. But it's always uh, nice to see someone like a Father Pavone and Priest for Life backing the play. Exactly. You know what? You, yes, what, of course. Let of us course. We'll take the lead, but at least back our play, for goodness sakes. Of course. Absolutely. And no disagreement there. I, I uh, lament the same things you're lamenting, and uh, I applaud Father uh, – uh, I'm sorry, his name again is uh, – Rothrock, yeah. Rothrock. Rothrock. Uh, and, and there's several other priests who have found themselves in the same position uh, on that and other matters over the years. Um, I, I, I just this, – this piece, it's um, – I just want to get your reaction to a couple of lines from this piece, what it says to you about culture – uh, where we are at. Um, this is a piece uh, that was written in The Guardian by a woman named Ann Newman, Why I Don't Have a Child, I Cherish My Freedom. And um, she recounts how the most salient bit of advice she received from her divorced father was just don't get pregnant. She um, writes that um, at the age of 52 now, reflecting on what she's done and why she chose not to have children, I loved, lived, slept with whomever I pleased. I kept a post-it note in my wallet that says, I can do anything I want. I spent thousands of dollars and countless time and anxiety trying to not get pregnant during my reproductive years. Two abortions and decades of birth control later, I'm one of the lucky ones. It's deeply sad and very telling. I don't know what her therapy costs uh, were, but I'll bet you dollars to donuts. There was a lot of that, too, which isn't a bad thing, but it didn't obviously bring an integration in this woman's life. I'm not saying she had to have lots of kids, but to be giving yourself around like that, I will tell you that woman has dealt with great darkness in her life and is dealing with it now as she approaches her, her senescence. It's just very sad and bespeaks the culture of death, you know, that uh, who is going to take care of her? It's going to be somebody who had kids. Or, or the kids of somebody who had kids mm -hmm. uh, who are going to take care of her in her old age and in her loneliness. You know, I, I'm sorry for her. I, I, I mean her no ill, 
I would love to meet her and, and have a conversation with her. He is Father Robert Sirico, president and co-founder of the Acton Institute. That's Acton.org, the best uh, think tank slogan in the Western world, connecting good intentions with sound economics. I love it. Father Sirico, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thank you. Take care. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos echoing the president's words about uh, encouraging and incentivizing through strings on federal dollars school district officials around the country to reopen schools for in-student learning in the fall. Well, like the president said today, there is no excuse for schools not to reopen again and for kids to be able to learn again full-time. The data doesn't suggest anything different. The medical experts aren't suggesting anything different. And as you pointed out in your opening uh, statement, uh, this is more an issue of adults who are more interested in their own issues than they are about serving their students. It's very right. clear that kids have got to go back to school. That was uh, during her appearance on Tucker Carlson, Vice President Pence, echoing the president's and the Secretary of Education's words. But what we heard again uh, yesterday from education officials and, and what we heard from the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, it's absolutely essential that we get our kids back into classroom uh, for in-person learning. We can't let our kids fall behind academically, uh, but it's important that the American people uh, remember uh, that, uh, that for uh, children that, that have mental health issues, for special needs children, uh, for nutrition, for uh, children in, in uh, uh, communities facing persistent poverty, the school is the place where they receive all those services. And so this is not just simply about making sure our kids are learning and they're advancing academically, but, but, but for their mental health, for their well-being, for their physical health, for nutrition. We've got to get our kids back to school. Why are conservatives so uh, excited, so aggressive in pushing a reopening of schools? Why do we want to send the majority of kids who attend public schools in this country back to totalitarian re-education centers? Anybody ever think of that? What are you sending them back to learn exactly? I mean, even math is force-fed through the racial prism in big city school districts like Seattle. So what? why are you rushing to to encourage the schools to reopen? Why not let it just why, why not stay silent? I don't know. Take it up with the teachers' union and your local school district. It's a local issue. Why run interference for your enemies? Your political enemies. That's what the teachers unions are. That's what the educrats are. Why run the interference? You know what K through 12 education has become in this country. You know who's in charge of it. You know whose interests are being served. Those in charge of it, not the kids. So have this be a teachable moment for the parents in these school systems. What about that thought? Somebody else who's had that thought besides me is our friend David Harsani over at uh, National Review, where he's a senior writer 
He's also the author of the book First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun from the Revolution to Today. David, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, you uh, suggest uh, in no uncertain terms we should be talking about leveling the public schools, not reopening them. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that they're a... uh They've done a lot of damage to this country in, in two ways, especially considering the moment. I think that uh, we have, we've created a bunch of civic illiterates. We see that in the civics tests that they can't pass, and we see that in the way – we see that in every poll, especially the younger you get, the less you know about American history and civics. And on the other end of things, they've created segregated neighborhoods. They create segregated schools, and then they protect them in every way, not just uh, when it comes to vouchers, but when it comes to most in most big city school districts, when it comes to charter schools or any kind of real choice for parents. So it's uh, I think it's a, a problem on both ends. But instead, what's going to happen when they return to school is the curriculum will be even more racialized than it was previously. And now you're going to have Nicole Hannah-Jones army of uh, diversity consultants, uh, Robin D'Angelo's book being required reading, and it's going to be just uh, more of what was insinuating itself into the classroom prior to the shutdowns. So, again, this is so exciting to get the kids back to school, to not play sports and to you know sit and be force-fed Robin D'Angelo's intellectual bilge. Yeah, but, I mean, the problem is that most people can't afford to send their kids elsewhere, so they have to, you know, and they right. need to get their kids out of their house because they're, you know. they got to go to work. They got to go to work, right? They got to live their lives. Uh, rich people don't have that concern, and they already have good school districts because they can buy into those neighborhoods. So, it's really sort of middle class kids and poor kids who are or, are suffering, and they're going to go to school, and it's going to be a bad situation. But being at home for a year straight or whatever is going to be a bad situation as well. When we come back with David Harsani, I want to begin with his uh, excellent one sentence summation of how we conceive K through twelve education in America. More with David Harsani right up. My house for the funky comedina. You know what I'm saying? I got every dog in my neighborhood breaking down my door. I got Spuds and Kenzie, Alex from Strohs. They won't leave my dog alone with that Medina pal. I went out to this girl. She said, hi, my name is Sheena. I thought she'd be good to go with a little... Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back with NRO's David Harsani. And David, I want to get to this uh, sentence in your piece at nationalreview.com that I think beautifully encapsulates how public K-12 through education is organized in America. You write, the entire dynamic is driven by the antiquated notion that the best way to educate kids is to throw them into the nearest government building. <laughs> if, you, if you describe K-12 education like that, which is a fair description, how many people would actually raise their hand rather than all of this flowery rhetoric about kids in our future and we're doing this and that and we're all kid-centered, and, which is all lies. It is all union agitprop. Right. I mean, you can buy like 25 streaming uh, movie services for your house, but you can't pick the school your kid goes to, you know? And it's like you can buy anything from anywhere around the world online within minutes, but you're not allowed to send your kid to another school, you know, that the government doesn't have within your district borders typically. Now, that's, I think, a problem because 
obviously it's a lot of one-size-fits-all education and you have kids with all kinds of different needs and all kinds of different personalities and you need different kinds of teachers, but you don't get that. And now one of the other threats to educational choice is not only the teachers' unions, but uh, the lockdown policies jeopardizing the financial integrity of private schools that are still, to some extent, to, a, to, to not as much extent as they want, thanks to the Supreme Court decision yesterday, but to some extent under the control of their state and local governments. And so if they can't reopen or they can't meet the public health requirements to reopen, and maybe if, even if they can in the fall, you're still going to have attrition there because they just can't survive without the tuition that's paid. They can't provide scholarships for kids to come to those schools without benefactors. And now some of those benefactors may be gone or, and parents who send their kids to private schools may be gone because, you know, the economic hit they took during the lockdown. Absolutely. The schools will always survive. They'll always get their money from taxpayers. It's not the case for private schools. You know, you know, we have to lure students there with, with actual results, et cetera. So, that's it's going to it's potentially a very bad situation for for people who care about school choice. And the other uh, one other development uh, in the last week that I thought was particularly noxious. And it's a reminder because I know there's a lot of uh, school choice advocates that treat opportunity scholarships, real private choice, the same way as they treat charter schools. And, and I'm all for, you know, the collegiate model, public and private competing against one another, anything to advance competition. So I'm, I'm a proponent, but I, I also hesitate to be full-throated like I am with private schools because a lot of these charter schools are underwritten by leftist benefactors. I mean, we've got one in Illinois that was underwritten by our leftist governor, J.B. Pritzker, uh, for example. And when push comes to shove, they will bend the knee to the cultural Marxists. And I'm talking about the KIPP charter schools in New York that uh, are discarding their motto, their motto being work hard and be nice, because that is clearly too controversial in these times, that it's clearly too dismissive of the notion that we don't live in a true meritocracy. It doesn't contemplate the complicated nature of uh, class and economics and race in this country. So work hard and be nice has to be scrapped and knowledge is power is doing it voluntarily. That's just be nice. <laughs> I agree with you on, on charters in general, but I think when you uh, have charters and they're somewhat successful, in a way you're convincing people that the underlying idea of being able to go to another school or send your kid to a, 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 you know, a different school than the one right down the block is a good one for them to embrace and normalize the idea that you don't have to just be able to walk to your school. So I agree with you in general. They're basically controlled by the public school systems, basically by the far left that run those cities. So they're not great oftentimes in Denver and elsewhere that I've seen them. But I still think that the idea is good and hopefully that, you know, germinates and, and, and causes more. Uh, yeah, no, I, and I, and I agree with that. Um, so let's go to, uh, this, um, in my view, much overhyped letter in Harper's Magazine, uh, mostly signed by leftists calling for an end to the cancel culture before the cancel culture brings about their end. And uh, it, the ink wasn't even dry in that letter before there was a, a an ironic backlash, which resulted in some of the signatories, including a Tufts University professor and uh, some trans activist writer uh, to... 
to apologize, to call for their name to be removed from the letter, to report the trans one trans uh, the trans activist reported Matt Iglesias, not exactly a conservative over at Vox.com, uh, reported him to Vox.com because uh, the trans activists didn't feel that Vox.com was any lo- was was uh, still a safe space because of Matt, Matt Iglesias' signature on that letter. Uh, unfortunately, I just am not uh, particularly persuaded or impressed by the letter, which includes all sorts of cheap shots against Trump and quote unquote right wingers. Uh, and number and number two, um, it, it's just uh, as uh, Tyler Cohen observed, it's just very Straussian in nature. It, it really dances around the fundamental issue because they're just trying to say, just protect me, just leave me alone. Um, and I also want to signal to the right that the left is doing something so we don't come across as, you know, completely lobotomized Jacobins. But it doesn't really do anything to advance the notion of America being a, a, a society that respects free thought and free speech. No, it doesn't. First of all, it's just insane. Let me put it this way. So the letter is is garbage, right? It's just milk. I mean, it's, it doesn't say anything real. It's just they wrote it because they assumed every there wouldn't be an, a, a sane person on earth who could disagree with that sentiment, and especially on the left. And then they, there were there's tons of people who disagree with it. So I thought the letter was useless when I first read it, but now I think it shows how incredibly far many progressives have gone gone as far as cancel culture goes, as far as just the basic rejecting basic liberal ideals of American society, that people should be able to voice their opinions and have open discourse and not be canceled for, you know, for having a simply a, a, a position that doesn't uh, comport with everything the far left says. So uh, I think the letter has been somewhat useful in, in, in showing how ridiculous things have gotten. Um, but I mean, I agree with you as far as the letter goes and Tyler Cowan, or I think his name wrote on his blog that the, that the letter itself, did, it, you know, didn't even really embrace, uh, the case for, 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 for open discourse as it should have. David Harsani, senior writer for National Review and author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun from the Revolution to Today. Dave, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And um, this development in the George Floyd case, a filing from an attorney representing Thomas Lane, who is one of the officers charged for abetting second-degree murder, the filing is a filing to dismiss the charges against Officer Lane. The filing includes transcripts of body camera footage and interviews with Mr. Lane, who said he believed that George Floyd was in medical distress and repeatedly asked his more senior officer, Derek Chauvin, if they should roll Mr. Floyd on his side. When officers first apo- approached Floyd, who was sitting in his car on suspicion of using that counterfeit $20 bill, he wouldn't immediately show his hands. So Officer Lane drew his weapon, but he put it away after Floyd complied. This according to the filings. Still, Floyd wouldn't get out of the car. From a transcript, quote, please don't shoot me, Mr. Officer. Please don't shoot me, man, Mr. Floyd said. This is body camera footage transcript. 
Officer Lane, step out and face away. I'm not shooting. Step out and face away. Okay, okay, okay. Please, please, man. Please, please, Floyd said. Get out of the car, Officer Lane said. Stop resisting, Floyd, said one of the other passengers in the car. And then this additional detail, again, from the filing, the attorney representing Lane. So taking this as fact, obviously be disputed. As officers tried to get Floyd to walk to a squad car, he repeatedly said, He couldn't breathe and was claustrophobic. When officers finally got him inside the car, Floyd began to thrash and hit his head against the glass inside the squad car, causing his mouth to bleed. Floyd began to thrash inside the car, hit his head against the glass inside the squad car. Officers called in the ambulance because of the bleeding, then held Floyd down on the ground because they believed he would injure himself further if he wasn't restrained, according to the court filing. I can't breathe. Mr. Floyd said at one point while he was on the ground, as we know, you're fine. You're talking fine, said another officer, Kang, according to the transcription. Floyd again. I'm through. I'm through. I'm claustrophobic. My stomach hurts. My neck hurts. Everything hurts. Need some water, something. Please, please. Can't breathe, officer. Adding later, you're going to kill me, man. Chauvin replied, then stop talking. Stop yelling. It takes a lot, heck of a lot of energy of oxygen to talk. When Mr. Floyd stopped kicking, Officer Lane, the rookie, asked if he should move him on his side, speculating that he was in a state of excited delirium, according to the court filing. Mr. Lane, uh, when it became clear that uh, Floyd was uh, unconscious and, and then ambulance arrived, Mr. Lane attempted to give Floyd CPR in the ambulance and was just following Chauvin's lead, according to the filing. The attorney, well, our argument is that he had no knowledge that a crime was committed, if in fact a crime was committed which he doesn't believe in the case, and he did not willfully assist in committing any crime, saying that he didn't really see where Chauvin's knee was on Floyd's neck. So this is a court filing from a defense attorney representing one of the officers, but it does include, uh, which you have to accept, is a fair transcription of the body camera, uh, the body camera audio. So Derek Chauvin is one thing. Some of those other officers, that may turn out to be another based on the manifest weight of the evidence, and if it does meaning uh, lesser charges, even dismissal of charges, or perhaps an acquittal, then how will the nation react? Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. You can follow us danproftshow.com on social media at Dan Proft Show and or at Dan Proft. Another Dan, Dan Henniger, writing in the Wall Street Journal, that uh, November 3rd will be a 4th of July election, uh, comparing and contrasting uh, what we received from President Trump since the outbreak of the pandemic uh, compared to the speech he delivered over the weekend at Mount Rushmore. Also comparing what we received from Joe Biden as the, uh, the survivor of the Democrat primary by default, as Henninger, I think, properly describes, a decision by Democrat voters in diverse states to choose moderation, Surely that counts for something as an expression of the American mind. Perhaps, but where are we now? Hanninger writes, there, these are times and emotions that don't lend themselves to conventional political analysis. For example, one may ask, is never Trumpism finally overplaying its hand? With the election near, 
the Trump wallowing media has decided its commitment to truth, quote unquote, requires distortions of reality, such as that his Mount Rushmore speech was dark. The protesters are voices of light and the reviving economy is actually sinking. But much of the media is propagating this doom to the horizon scenario when the public is focused on finding an upside and an exit from what they've just been through, both with the pandemic and with the civil unrest. There will be debates, perhaps much to the chagrin of Tom Friedman and a lot of other Biden acolytes. Uh, Mr. Trump could decide it's more important for him to pick fights with more Bubba Wallace's than elaborate the Mount Rushmore argument for his reelection. But we don't need a political reset. The pandemic and the protests have been enough reset for a generation. Well, it's interesting because the reset or transformation, probably more accurately, is precisely what's on the table with a Biden candidacy, even if Biden is not a transformative figure himself. He's captive to them, isn't he? For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Rod Dreher. He is senior editor at the American Conservative and author of the forthcoming book, Live Not By Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents, which is scheduled for release uh, September at the end of September, September 29th of this year. Rod, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. What about uh, Dan Henninger's uh, analysis of sort of where we're at, where we're all sort of on gooey footing trying to figure out where we're at, but um, uh, identifying you know the problems uh, intrinsic to both candidates from where they were pre-pandemic or, or in Joe Biden's case, um, pre-nomination. Right. I, as a conservative, I'm very worried about this coming election. President Trump is in a very weak position, and he just can't seem to get get his act together. And we are facing here in this country a radical transformation. As you said, uh, Joe Biden, probably not a transformational candidate in and of himself. He's so old, but he's just going to be the facade for some true radicalism that once it gets into power, it's going to be very hard to get out. And I got to tell you that a lot of us are focused on politics as distinct from culture. And I think that's a mistake. Even if we reelect Donald Trump and, please God, uh, the Republican Senate, we're still going to be faced in this country with tremendous revolutionary change happening in the media, in popular culture, and in institutions, including big business. They are putting into place this radical cultural Marxism. The president can't really stop on his own. This has got to have to be something that has stopped by the people at the local level. Yeah, people at the local level. That's, that's interesting as opposed to saying sort of the, the default position of many analysts to say, well, you know, the, the professional set within the Republican ranks, the cooler heads, the experienced hands, uh, you get some of that. And um, what I find is something that uh, I'm, I'm really sort of borrowing from Victor Davis Hanson which is sort of the establishment right and left in D.C. and the media are about holding on to their incomes, including a lot of conservatives. And this is something VDH has said. He wouldn't name names, but he certainly had names in mind. And, and so they're not really in, uh, so interested in battling the other side, except for perception to appease the lower ranks of their own side. Oh, and they're terrified, the professional Republicans, of being called bigots. I've seen this myself in dealing with them. They want to get the votes and the money from social conservatives in the base, the deplorables, but they don't want to actually stand up for us if it means being called a bigot by the New York Times or National Public Radio. Listen, Dan, this is something so serious. About five years ago, I got a call from a man, a doctor at the Mayo Clinic, who said that his elderly mother, who had spent six years in a communist prison in Czechoslovakia for her faith, 
she lives in America now, was living with him and his and his wife. And she said, son, the things that are happening in this country right now remind me of what happened when communism came to my birth country. And the, the doctor called me saying, this is freaking me out. What do we do about this? Well, I thought the old lady was maybe a little bit excitable. So I started asking around. Every time I would travel somewhere in the country to a conference, would meet somebody who had grown up in the Soviet Union or one of the communist countries of Eastern Europe, I would ask them, what do you see happening in America now? Does it remind you in any way of where you came from? Then every single one of them said, absolutely. And they're so angry at Americans for not seeing it. They say, why are you so blind? Why are you welcoming this into your country? We know where this leads. You know, you, uh, you wrote something in a piece about the Harper's letter, which I want to get to, about uh, two different people reaching out to you saying that um, they've come to realize certain friends of theirs would have no hesitation denouncing them to a tribunal for being a thought criminal. Can you imagine even contemplating that question about your friends, about those within your social circle? I wonder if my friend would turn me into a thought tribunal if one were ever erected in America. And the answer is probably yes. That is staggering. So a man in the Pacific Northwest wrote me and said it's happening in his own family. He made a very mild joke about cancel culture in a family uh, email circle, and he's having relatives write to him and say, we can't have anything to do with you anymore. He said, these are evangelical Christians. He said some of the older ones even fly an American flag from their front porch. But it's like this virus has taken over people's minds. And mind you, this is exactly what happened in countries leading up to communism and once communism took over. Well, and, and the, the point that you make, too, in terms of these comparisons and getting comparisons from people who've lived in both sides of it, which are always really interesting, is that, you know, the position we were in, I mean, for so many people, the position we're in now feels like oh, it just uh, bubbled up to the surface uh, uh, because of the George Floyd killing. I mean, this has been ongoing in cultural institutions for since the 60s. It's just increased in pace maybe over the last decade with identitarian politics, the rise and the hold of identitarian politics. But people just don't have any historical perspective on this because it sort of comes uh, to a point slowly over generations. Oh, sure. And it's like the, the famous parable of the boiled frog. Right. It has been happening at a slower and slower uh, at a slow pace, but it's been gradually quickening. And the George Floyd thing coming at the same time as the pandemic, I think that just finally broke. And people are shocked. A lot of conservatives I know, ordinary people who don't follow this sort of thing, they're absolutely shocked by how far it's gone. And they don't know what to do. I tell them, we've got to listen to the people who lived with this under Soviet communism because they know how to survive this. The Harper's letter is mainly left, not exclusively, but mainly leftist uh, academics and celebrities that signed this letter sort of kind of uh, against the cancel culture because they're afraid the cancel culture was going to end them if they don't end it. And um, talking about free speech and free thought sort of kind of. But they also say the forces of illiberalism are gaining strength throughout the world, have a powerful ally in Donald Trump. They talk about right wing demagogues. They talk about uh, while we've come to expect this sort of suppression, censoriousness on the radical right, it's spreading more widely in our culture. That's a little bit of a, of a mischaracterization of what's been happening at whose hands it's been happening. So I was a bit surprised to see you write that you're grateful for the signatories of this letter, this seemed to me like sort of very tepid and very self-interested and not terribly principled. Oh, well, let me tell you, this is why I like that. I like that letter. 
when I first read it, my reaction was kind of like yours. I'm like, this is very bland, liberal, liberal uh, cream of wheat. But yeah. when I saw what happened, uh, how the radical left responded so angrily, trying to get some of these liberals canceled, I realized the, the genius of the strategy behind the, the liberals who wrote this letter. They were trying to to smoke out the radical left to show exactly how radical they are and intolerant of free speech and free exchange of ideas. Uh, the idea here was to write something that's completely bland and liberal that every liberal should be able to agree with. You know, they're standing for free speech, and they even had a denunciation of Donald Trump. But these far not enough, could, right? Not, not enough. enough for them. Yeah, and, and this shows that uh, and it proves to everybody how you can never placate these far left progressives. That you can only fight them. Do not engage them in any kind of uh, of discussion. It's uh, they don't want to discuss anything with us. They just want power. He is Rod Dreher, senior editor at the American Conservative, author of the forthcoming book "Live Not by Lies: A Manual for Christian Dissidents," which uh, releases September twenty ninth. 2020, September 29th of this year. You want to pick that up as uh, all of as you do all of Rod Dreyer's work. Rod, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for fighting the good fight. Take care. Listen to podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, the uh, folks over at VictoryGirlsBlog.com caught a TikTok video that's uh, perhaps instructive of a larger phenomenon happening in this country. Two young leftist women offering uh, their rendition of uh, Lee Greenwood's Proud to be an American song. I'm ashamed to be an American where not all folks are free. And I won't forget the enslaved who died and built this place for free. So I proudly lift up all the folks who are still oppressed today. Because there ain't no doubt this ain't our land. Trump and the USA. Hmm. F Trump and F the USA. Is this uh, indicative of a larger phenomenon? And to the extent it's, it is of a certain age racial and ideological demographic that hates America, should we uh, pay much concern to it? For help on those questions, we're pleased to be joined by Dave Seminara, journalist, former diplomat, author of Breakfast with Polygamists, Dispatches from the Margins of America. Dave, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me back on the show, Dan. So um, you wrote uh, a piece for uh, NationalReview.com about uh, the um, decline of patriotism, characterizing it as a uh, worrisome. And really, there's a particularly uh, stark partisan slash ideological divide. Should we be all that concerned about uh, women look like those two young women who uh, took to TikTok to immortalize themselves with that uh, little ditty? We should be very concerned. There's a lot of different issues at play here. And we can argue with our Democratic friends about who should be president. We can argue about pro-life and pro-choice. But the one argument we can't lose, that's love of country. This is the one thing we must all agree upon. It's something I'm afraid that we're losing. We're losing a lot of young people, particularly, 
who have fallen for this dogma that we're essentially a horrible country, that it's a rotten, sinister place built upon nothing but racism and sexism and so on and so forth. And I think the polls are showing. Gallup every year has asked people, you know, how proud are you to be American? Very proud, somewhat proud, or not at all proud. And the group that answers not at all proud has really been growing, especially among young people. I think something like more than a fifth of young people answered not at all proud. Well, what if we ever have to have a draft? What do we have to have, have to fight a war? I mean, who's going to fight on behalf of a country that they don't even like, let alone respect or love? Well, I mean, this is a time where uh, the old fuddy-duddies need to be pushed aside because youth is to be served, and they're in the business of transforming our country to make it more just, to make it uh, a veritable utopia, as I understand it. And so that requires, as Representative Ilhan Omar said the other day, that we dismantle our economy and political system. So what's wrong with that? She's a good example of someone who should be very, very grateful to be in the United States, but who isn't. One of the points I tried to make in the National Review article is that the more you travel and the more time you spend outside of the country, the more you can appreciate America. I had a chance when I was in the Foreign Service to travel quite a bit overseas and also after leaving the Foreign Service and to live in other countries. As part of a book that I'm working on now about wanderlust called Mad Travelers, it's a book about a young con man who scammed some of the world's top travelers. I actually had a chance to meet and interview a couple of the world's most traveled people. And actually two of them, the top two guys are actually both live in the Chicago area. One of them is in Bolingbrook and one of them is in Downers Grove. And these guys, they've traveled, Dan, to literally every country on earth. But when you ask them, what's your favorite country? Their answer is the United States. And I think the problem with people like Gilhan Omar and others is that they simply lack perspective. No country is a utopia, believe me. But we've got our problems. But this is an incredible place. You look at, for example, another point I cited in the article is the Green Card Lottery. Millions and millions and millions of people from around the world are entering their names into the green card lottery for a chance to win here. And you know what? Some of the countries that send the most applications, they're in Africa. We've got literally millions of people in Africa who want to come to this country because they don't buy into the Colin Kaepernick rhetoric that this is a country of white supremacy. Yeah. uh, So uh, we shouldn't uh, remake America, say, in the image of Somalia, uh, Ilhan Omar's country. I I, I don't hear her advocating that very much, which is interesting. I do hear a lot of talk of transformation of this country. You know, what they've done, right, is to say uh, the founders were bad men. And so they couldn't have done anything good. If you do something bad, you can't do anything good, which is sort of a problematic view of humanity. If uh, you uh, want to uh, progress the condition at all, isn't it? I don't know where Ann Omar is coming from, to be quite honest with you. But what a lot of these leftists, it comes down to Trump. They have Trump derangement syndrome. They think that, well, how could the country have voted for a man like this because he's a racist, he's a sexist, so on and so forth. You know, it really bothers me because the presidency, the country is not all just about who is president. And the idea that, oh, I don't like the president, I can't stand the president, and therefore the whole country is rotten. This really disturbs me. Well, you know, I mean, you know what they've done? Sorry to interrupt, but you know what seems to me they've done, get your reaction to this, is, I mean, these ideologues, I mean, they didn't just arrive with Trump, as you know. I mean, there's been this hate America crowd, the intellectual left, particularly on college campuses for many generations. But what they've done is take advantage of the antipathy that has been whipped up in in, uh, in, in the direction of Trump to convert uh, another generation or at least significant portions of it to their hatred of America uh, ideology, which has been uh, applied uh, on college campuses and in corporate boardrooms even for some time. 
No, I think you're right. I mean, this is certainly anti-Americanism is not a new phenomenon, but unfortunately it's growing and it has grown, I think, by leaps and bounds during the Trump administration, unfortunately. And I think that the polls bear that out. I think even just a few years ago, the percentage who said that they were not at all proud of America in the Gallup poll was much less than it is now. Right. And when I was researching that piece, it didn't actually make it into the final cut. But I looked back to old Fourth of July issues of the New York Times, Dan, and it was very interesting. I found a Fourth of July issue of the New York Times from 1990, so 30 years ago, they ran a cover story about the growing patriotism of black Americans. And it was really a, really a very patriotic piece. And it talked about how you know African-Americans love their country and about growing patriotism of African-Americans. And for context, in 1990, that same year, I was looking up the actual survey that they were referring to. During that same year, there was a Gallup survey that asked people, how would you feel if a close relative of yours married a person of color? And a majority of Americans 30 years ago said that they would not like that or would not feel comfortable to that. Now, compared that to today, the last time Gallup asked that question, something like 95% of Americans said no problem. They would have no problem with a close relative marrying a person of another color. So, I mean, it's, racism has declined precipitously in the United States in 30 years. And yet at the same time, uh, people's perception of that is 180 degrees opposite. So what I'm saying is that there's much less racism today, but there's much more of a hyper awareness of the racism that does occur. So it leads people to have a warped perception about the prevalence of racism in the country. Because the warpers uh, figured out long ago, back dating back to the 60s, as uh, Shelby Steele so convincingly argued in uh, White Guilt, they figured out uh, that that warping that you're describing is the path to political power. Right. And I mean, you see this happening in, in some of these fake hate crimes. Like just the other day, there was a gentleman who was running for some sort of a local office in Oregon who sent himself, uh, you know, a fake, a fake letter. Did you read about this? Yes, he sent himself right. a letter. He sent himself a letter essentially saying that, you know, we hate Mexicans and, you know, basically a very anti, anti-Mexican letter. And then the police investigated it and he sent it to himself. So, I mean, there's people who are out there actually trying to create instances of racism that don't exist because everyone wants to perpetuate this notion that we're an awful, horrible, racist country. And you know what? I, I, I just don't buy it. I think that the number of people who really hate people of other colors and races in the United States is tiny. And it's been it's been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. But I think, unfortunately, the media um, and a lot of others on the left have really distorted this to make it out to be that we're just this awful country. And I'm sorry, I don't buy it. Yeah, and there's a great book on hate crime hoaxes called Hate Crime Hoax. Uh, Will Riley, a professor at Kentucky State University. Uh, he is uh, Dave Seminera. He's a journalist, former diplomat, author of Breakfast with Polygamists, Dispatches from the Margins of the Americas. Dave, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on the show, Dan. Take, Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. School reopenings in the context of uh, COVID-19. Continue our conversation uh, with a more global perspective, both geographically as well as on the many issues under the umbrella COVID beyond school reopening. To help us do that, we're pleased to be joined by Peter Collignan. He's an infectious disease doctor and microbiologist at the Australian National University. Dr. Collignan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So um, I'm a bit perplexed. We mentioned this in passing, talking about school reopenings. New York Times, Sweden has become the world's cautionary tale. 
the data, Sweden's lowest death rate since early May. It is testing as much as Germany is on a per capita basis, one of the more heavily tested countries along with the United States. And yet its uh, cases fall as well to its lowest level since May. So was the uh, soft touch approach of Sweden, has that proven just as effective, if not more so than the lockdowns when you include the consequences of the trade-offs based on the decisions that were made? Or is a Sweden a cautionary tale, as the New York Times reports? Well, from the perspective in Australia, I think it's a cautionary tale. Their per capita death rate is 50 times higher than Australia. Their population is 10 million, while ours is 25 million. Yet they've had, you know, I think, over 4,000 deaths, while we've only had 106 deaths so far here. Now, we've had a bit of luck, I think, in Australia, because we didn't have the virus probably circulating for a couple of months, which I think was the case in Europe and probably the US before it was discovered. And it may also have been lucky that we had warmer weather when it was, you know, because we're in the Southern Hemisphere. And most of the people that got it were return travellers from predominantly the US and Europe. And we were able to close our borders very early, contain the return travellers, quarantine them, do a lot of testing, so that it ended up that about 70 or you know 80% of the cases we had originally were return travellers or return cruise ship people who, and then their immediate contacts. And we had very little community transmission here. Now, I might say it's changed a little bit because we're in winter and Melbourne, a city of 5 million people, is now having an outbreak, but still relatively compared to other places in the world, they might have had a couple of thousand cases over 5 million and with extensive tests. But it is actually spreading in the community. We hope we can control it again. But we've been in a much better position. We haven't had a lockdown and close everything, you know, for long periods of time. And we've had a much lower death rate so far and a lot less cases. So the hope is, and maybe it's because we're an island nation, that we can actually contain this to low levels. Some people even talk about elimination, but I think that's not realistic. But at least we can get it down to low levels. So, you know, I live in Canberra. We've got about half a million people and we've had minimal community transmission here. You know, five cases, in fact, over three months, all the rest have been people who have come in from overseas and we've been able to quarantine them. So, so far, we're in a good position without doing the total lockdown like New Zealand did for long periods of time, but also without the large number of deaths that they've had in Sweden. And there's no doubt, like I presume the US, the majority of the deaths we've had here are in 80-year-olds and over. If you in Australia have COVID, you've got about a 15% death rate, while if you're under the age of 40, in fact, we've had no deaths. And you can argue well, is this just sort of worse than flu? Well, yeah, it behaves like influenza because the death rates are predominantly in those very old and with underlying conditions. But it's also 10 or 20 times probably higher death rate than influenza, you know, if, if for a person who gets infected. Now, I think it's more controllable than influenza is the good news because particularly children don't seem to get it as much, children under the age of 15. Yeah. They still can get it and they can get very sick, but their rate of infection is five or 10 times lower than their parents if they're in their 20s and 30s. Influenza children tend to get it five times more than adults. Well, this is the opposite. Yeah. Now, we don't and, and, quite understand uh, why, uh, but it's good. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, and just on that point, I mean, there's a couple of points I want to make. One, on that point, yeah, five times more likely, as you said, with the flu for kids, and yet we're locking down schools ostensibly for the kids. It's a bunch of nonsense is what it is, and this is what Dr. Scott Atlas called it, the dumbest public policy in modern history, and um, I don't think he's uh, overstating the case. Number two, on Sweden, a confirmed case fatality rate is a fraction of UK, France, Spain, in addition to the overall deaths per one million 
is less than other lockdown countries, and including the UK. So it seems to be that this is a bit more complicated than uh, just looking at uh, lockdown versus reopening, particularly when you're only looking at COVID and we're not talking uh, holistically about deaths of despair as a result of lockdown policy and including that in lockdown states versus or hard touch versus light touch states, as well as the reordering all of healthcare infrastructure to COVID-19 patients to the exclusion of elective procedures or even processes, uh, checkups and so forth. Yeah, but it seems to me that this is uh, such a, a wildly different approach to a pandemic than we've taken before. When we come back with uh, Peter Kalignan, I want to talk about data, but data that contemplates the trade-offs that we're making. All of the data, not just some of it. More right after that. You know that I be somebody. Someone like you. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Peter Colligan, and I want to talk about data uh, and the um, real-time assessments of what's happening, both with, in terms of COVID-19 and the trade-offs we've made and the resources we've devoted in the approach that we've taken to combating COVID-19. I, I want to get out of this uh, COVID-19 tunnel vision that we're in to take a look at the entirety of the landscape. Well, I think that is a problem with a two-tunnel vision. And in my mind, there's no doubt that COVID is, you know, much worse than influenza, but might spread a bit less, which is good news. But the real problem is if you really lock down hard, you might find you get increased deaths from everything from suicide to heart disease, cancer not being treated properly. So at the end of the day, you've got to look at the total amount of deaths and or total number of deaths. And uh, at least the English data have seen, a lot of the deaths that are occurring that are increasing are not COVID, at least as far as I can tell now. Now, one of the issues is what is the mortality rate. Now, perversely, places like Australia and Korea, where we haven't had uncontrolled spread, I think are good ways of looking at that relatively. The death rate in Australia is about 1.2% of everybody that's got it. Um, you've got to adjust that for age. One of the reasons Singapore looks as good from a mortality rate is because their spread is between predominantly in their migrant workers who are living 20 or 30 people in a, in, you know, in a room, basically. And because they're young, their mortality rate is really low. So if you get a lot of cases and it's young people, your mortality rate would look good. Relatively, mortality rates have looked higher in a lot of places, and I suspect the US is like that, because so many mild cases weren't picked up initially because, you know, there's overwhelming of the system. Once you get more testing and you're picking up those mild cases, your mortality rate will look better. But at least as far as I'm aware, a lot of places in Europe and America have still got a much higher mortality rate than Australia. I think because yes. still there were a lot of undetected cases. You tend to detect the deaths, but not what we call the denominator, the total number of people, because if a system is overwhelmed and you don't have enough testing, you just don't test those people, but they get better anyway. Well, right. I mean, our CDC said uh, last week, it, this was when the case, the, the, the confirmed cases was in the two millions. They said, we don't believe it's two and a half million. It's probably more like 20 to 22 million. Well, if it's 20 to 22 million that have been infected, if the CDC's guesstimate is right, that brings our case fatality rate down to like six one hundredths of a percent, which is actually less than in the uh, seasonal flu. I mean, I was originally under the impression that the mortality rate would end up about, you know, 0.3 or 0.4 percent. 
Now, I guess we need to wait and see whether we got more cases that we might be able to tell from what we call serology and antibody tests. But even in, in Sweden, where they've done more of this in Germany, that the death rate still looks like it's at least 0.5 or 0.6%. You say, oh, that's low, but that's probably 10 times higher than seasonal influenza you know, over a population. So this is still a significant mortality any way you look at it. I think one of the reasons is seasonal influenza mortality rate tends to get overestimated because a lot of other causes, even the common cold, causes people to die in winter. Yet all the deaths are often said to be due to influenza, which well, I don't ju- think well, is true. Well, right. but- just, like, just like all the deaths in America are COVID-19 deaths. If, even if you have six other comorbidities, if you test positive for COVID-19, then it's a COVID-19 death. Well, to some degree, that yeah, that is true. But one of the ways I think we'll eventually work this out, and it'll be in about three or six months' time, is you can look over the last years how many people die every every winter. There's excess deaths right. um, for whatever for lots of viruses, and the real issue is how many extra excess deaths we had um, in this your winter and um, you know our winter coming compared to say the last you know two or three years. Uh, for instance, in 2017 here, because our winter is obviously in June, July. We had, you know, quite an excess death because the flu season was particularly bad. But, you know, overall that for in Australia, that ended up about 1,400 extra deaths. So far from COVID, we've only had 100 deaths here. Now, winter is just coming and we've got this, you know, outbreak in Melbourne. So I guess we'll be wiser in a few months time because winter is more of a risk usually than summer. Although it may be being in, inside as a risk because Interesting, your northern states had much more deaths and cases during your winter, and now it's your southern states. And one of the theories is, well, when it's hot in the southern states, you go inside, and inside is a risk. And in the northern states, well, you couldn't go outside, I guess, because you freeze to death. So, um, you know, I think a lot of these things will have to unravel, but there's no doubt that being inside is much more dangerous than being outside, particularly with crowds. Let's talk about transmission for a second. We talked about this two months ago, and I haven't, in the intervening two months, gotten uh, a particularly good answer from the experts. So I wonder what how you process this. We looked at uh, the cruise ships. This is at the height of the uh, outbreak, at least in the West. Princess Cruises, Diamond Princess ship, Holland America, USS Kidd, uh, also two uh, military ships where there was an outbreak. The Carnival Ruby Princess, the Royal Caribbean Ovation of the Seas. Um, the infection rate where there was an outbreak on those ships ranged from 10 to 28 uh, percent with the the deaths uh, of 43 out of 18,613 total passengers. But it, the overall affection rate about all those ships that I mentioned wh- that had outbreaks on board. So people in close quarters for an extended period of time. And this is really before we had a full understanding of transmission or 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 it was, you know, as prevalent in the in, in the, the cognition of the public as it is now. The overall infection rate among those 18,000 plus uh, passengers on those very ships was 16%. Close quarters, extended exposure, 16% positivity rate. How do you explain that? Well, I think actually that's because this virus is not as infectious and not in, not in aerosols, which some, you know, aerosols mean small particles that stay in the air for hours. I think it reinforces, again, this is mainly via droplets, which means the good news is you can do something about it. We had the same problem here with some cruise ships with 20% of the passengers being infected. Now, why is it so high? Um, I actually think it's because you're actually in a confined space and the death, again, disproportionately are the elderly. And right. one of the reasons... You may actually see so many cases on cruise ships 
is the you know the crew is young, but they're in pretty cramped quarters below the waterline often. Oh, yeah. And I wonder whether it's because they're in relatively cramped quarters, they get a mild infection because they're younger, and they pass it on to the others because they're in close proximity when they're you know um, you know waiting and things like that. So what that actually means is yes, there is a very high transmission rate, and in China and other places where they've looked what? at household transmission. It's about 15% as well, which is people stuck together in small, um, you know, communities, small spaces for, you know, up to, well, seven or 14 days. It is surprising that it's as low as it is. When we come back, I'm going to talk about the public perception, the meaning that uh, the American public, but the Western general, attach to some of these hashtag campaigns around best practices in combating COVID, social distancing and the mask wearing and so forth. More with Peter Collignan when we return. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Peter Cognon, and I wanted to uh, discuss public perception. I think the message a lot of the public receives in terms of what they understand about the virus and its transmission is this, you know, if you pierce my six-foot bubble, then I'm infected, then you're automatically going to get affected, and that's just not the case. The six-foot rule isn't magical because it's all about droplets. Droplets is when you cough or sneeze, you produce these moderately larger particles that drop, and that's why they're called droplets. And the closer you are to someone, the bigger the chance of getting on your face. Why not make but it eight it feet then? Tiny. Why not make it ten feet? Why not well, make it fifteen feet? Well, you've got to be practical. Oh, we if do have to be practical. That, yeah, you've got to come up with a measure that decreases your risk in a large proportion without paralyzing society. I mean, the reality is we're going to have this for a couple of years. We're going to have to reduce our risk. We can't make it zero. And we've got to come up with some number that is practicable to live with without, you know, all of us becoming hermits for the next two years, which is impossible. So one meter actually is protective as well, but not as protective as one and a half meters or six foot or two meters. Now, but the real issue is you don't just get it if you just glance past somebody, you know, for 10 seconds. All the, you know, our contact tracing in Australia is we we got a close contact to somebody who's been within that space of somebody who's got COVID for more than 15 minutes. And people who do less than that, not that they can never get it, but their risk is much lower than somebody who's been in the same staff room for, you know, 20 minutes with somebody often who's coughing a bit and who's got COVID and they, they're closer than, you know, one, you know, two, you know, well, for you you guys, um, six feet. But, um, you know, the closer you are, the higher your risk. Uh, I want to get, I, I, whether I, I, I just want to. Three feet or six feet, it's yeah. proportional. That's all. Oh, okay. Well, I, it's actually much lower after you get six feet because these droplets, in fact, most of them drop within mm-hmm. a metre or three feet. Um, some of them can go further, but the proportionality really drops fast. So, the you know, being six feet away compared to three feet is not just halving your risk. You're probably decreasing your risk tenfold compared mm-hmm. to being just three feet away. Uh, from, from a minimal risk to begin with, as the Japanese point person for uh, the COVID-19 response in Japan wrote in his op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, Mr. Nishimura, the Minister for the State's Economic Revitalization, as well as being the point man for COVID-19. And he said the reason Japan was able to be so successful against COVID-19 uh, uh, without locking down is that they realize something, that uh, transmission happens in clusters. 
And so they focused on cluster busting, as he says, because 80 percent of people who are infected. Don't pass it on to anyone, according to uh, his experience and what he reports in his op ed. And so they focused on uh, industrial sectors and clusters of transmission and put all of their energy into cluster busting. That makes sense. Well, that is true. I mean, 20 percent of people you know, cause 80% of um, the infection. The trouble is you don't know where the cluster is until after the event. So it still means if you want to decrease your risk, you need to actually avoid crowded indoor situations as much as is practicable and take those precautions because otherwise you know about it two weeks later when you found, oh, okay, there were 100 cases. Hey, Dr. Gallin, I'm sorry we're up against the clock. we got to end it there, but I do appreciate your time. Peter Cognon, doctor at uh, Australian National University, microbiologist. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com on social media at Dan Prof Show. And, uh, you know, it goes in this progression. First, the Ivy League, then the New York City public school system, and then the, all the other big city public school systems governed by Sandinistans like New York City. Mayor de Blasio announcing yesterday that uh, public schools would not fully reopen in September. Classroom attendance uh, limited to one to three days a week. Uh, the uh, staggering st- staggered schedules will be featured. Social distancing strictures in place. The uh, projection is that uh, no more than a dozen people in a classroom at a time, including teachers and aides, which uh, is a, a change from the typical class size in New York City schools, which can hover around 30 children per classroom. By the way, overcrowded and underfunded. 30 kids per classroom. Check that against public, uh, private schools, I should say. But nonetheless, to go from 30 to 12, including staff, uh, turns out to be a capacity problem, leaving hundreds of thousands of parents, families in the nation's largest public school system wondering what are they going to do with their children when they're not in school? What are they going to do for work so they can continue to provide a roof over their children's heads? Betsy DeVos and President Trump and Mike Pence are all out trying to press governors and mayors on the topic, including uh, by threatening to cut the purse strings from the federal government to local school districts. It's a small portion of school districts budgets, but in big urban centers like New York and Chicago, L.A., it's a, a consequential one. Here's DeVos on Tucker Carlson the other night. Well, that's that's definitely something to be looked at. The reality is most of the education funding, as you know, comes from the state and local level. So in excess of 90 percent of it does. But what the president and all of those at a roundtable today made very clear is the expectation that kids have got to continue their learning. There is no reason to withhold education, full time education. And I have to give a shout out to Commissioner Corcoran in Florida for putting forward a very comprehensive plan yesterday that had an expectation that all students would be able to be back in school in person five days a week. And And, uh, maybe 
Corcoran should be the uh, guy. Corcoran's guidelines are the one to be followed rather than the CDC. Because as we've talked about in this show, we have a study from Washington University's IHME Institute about how much of a failure the virtual classroom distance learning was during the end of the spring semester. We also have a study from Brown University about how much was lost lost in terms of gains in math and reading development by kids because of the shutdown of schools in the spring semester. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Carol Markowitz, columnist for the New York Post, contributor to Spectator USA and the Washington Examiner magazine. Carol, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, And so uh, what is the reaction on the ground to uh, the approach that de Blasio is taking? You know, I think New York City parents were sort of prepared for this reality, um, but it's still shocking. And I think the most shocking part uh, from what I, you know, the conversations I've had with parents is there is no science being followed here. Mm -hmm. This is not about facts. This is not about science. This is some crazy delusion that we can somehow protect everybody. And de Blasio actually said this. He said, this is the way to keep everybody safe. There's no such thing as keeping everybody safe. That does not exist. Um, so it, it's, it's a real issue that our elected officials don't care about the science. Well, in addition to that, you had this exchange between Rand Paul and Tony Fauci the other week uh, in a committee hearing. Rand Paul went through the data. Twenty two countries have reopened their schools, mm-hmm. phys- mm-hmm. students physically present. Sweden never locked theirs down. There's virtually no incidence of of death and very limited in, in incidence of even uh, infection. Right. And um, and Tony Fauci said, you know, we're in general agreement. So even you have Tony Fauci, who's the celebrity uh, infectious disease expert saying, yeah, that's where we need to get to kids back in the classroom. And these mayors are still ignoring it. Yeah. You know, again, I I don't understand the thinking that we can reopen the economy without reopening schools. As I keep saying, it's either we reopen the economy and reopen schools don't reopen the economy and don't reopen schools. But there's really no option of reopen the economy and not open schools. I'm sorry, nail salons are not more important than schools. And I love nail salons. So <laughs> it, this is not, you know, it just, it's, it's a lack of reality. And it, it, it really is partly shaped by the fact that uh, the governor of New York, the mayor of New York City, they don't have small children. Their kids are grown. It, it just, it's such a, reality that does not affect them, that they are unable to consider the the truth of the situation. Well, it's also, and, and this sort of dovetails with another piece you wrote recently, uh, and it's coming from the same place, one of ideology, mm-hmm. not, uh, not data or science or evidence, which is mm-hmm. uh, defund the police means I'm rich. Uh, don't right. open the schools, same thing, means I'm rich. My, my kids will be fine. Yeah. Yep, exactly. The, the defund police movement is really taking shape in rich white areas of New York City and in other cities. And the reality is that every study keeps showing that black people don't want to defund the police. And as the rich people are trying to strip these services from the poorer people, uh, you know, that's a continual issue. Um, you know, you had Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo on TV the other night laughing at the idea that there's a crime spike. Well, yeah, they're laughing. They're in their homes in the Hamptons. There's no crime spike there, and they don't have to worry about it. Uh, right, and with and it's it's having an effect though too. Um, to, uh, to 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 their point, the effect is 
that the New York Police Department has to limit the number of retirement applications because it can't process them fast enough. Wednesday, 179 cops filed for retirement uh, was announced Mm -hmm. between June 29 and and Monday of this week. That's a 411 percent increase over the same period of time in 2019. So uh, driving police from the police force. Yeah, so that ties into another piece I wrote for the Washington Examiner. It was the cover story in last week's issue about how there's a coming police apocalypse. We can't continue to treat police officers this way and think that we're going to get the best and brightest. And every police officer I spoke to for that piece could not wait to get out. And it was a really sad situation where not only could they not wait to get out, they're all, they all know exactly how much time they have left. Oh, I have four years till I could retire, et cetera. They all told me they would not encourage their children to become police officers. Um, and it's, it's a real, real big problem. Oh, but by the way, just on the going back to the COVID thing for one second, mm-hmm. I find I find it remarkable. Three states that comprise 10 percent of the American population are responsible for 42 percent of the deaths. Mm-hmm. That's where 42 mm-hmm. percent of the deaths have occurred. New York, New Jersey and Massachusetts. And those three right. governors have, have received exactly zero percent criticism from the D.C. Right, Eastern right. Establishment Press Corps, even though all three of them introduced the infected back into nursing homes. Yes, that's right. And, you know, and Governor Cuomo is on this victory tour on TV saying that New York handled it well and all these red states, they played politics with COVID and they lost. Well, up until a few days ago, New York still had the highest daily rate. Every day, more New Yorkers were dying of COVID than in other places. Is that a win? I I don't see how that's a win. Um, And and he gets no pushback at all. He's just the, the right party and nobody cares. Uh, I wanted to get to uh, one other piece that you uh, you penned recently, uh, and uh, it's important because we know the left, the uh, Jacobins are reading you. So that's just good to know, because mm-hmm. you suggested the cancel crowd should be gunning for Hamilton. And now they are. <laughs> yeah. I saw it coming. I, I, I can't say that they they read me and decided to do it. It was just so obvious that that's what was going to happen. Um, I'm a big fan of Hamilton. I really love the show. I thought it was such a love letter to America and to American history. Um, my 10 and 7-year-old have been obsessed with Hamilton for the last few years and just really got into American history because of it. It's an amazing show. It treats our founding fathers as the special but flawed men that they were, and it, it's really wonderful. Um, the joke, of course, is I don't understand how people can love Hamilton but hate America. And that's where where we are right now, where people are saying, you know, George Washington was this evil, evil man. Well, you can't really watch the Hamilton show and come away thinking George Washington's an evil man. He's he's the victor of the show. He's really the hero in it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I saw that cancellation attempt coming a mile away. And uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda is in full apology mode uh, while uh, waiting for all those signatories on that Harper's letter to rally to his defense. I think he's going to be waiting for a while. <laughs> right. Well, I, I said in the piece that I bet, you know, they start apologizing for it because it, it's the only way to survive right now. She is Carol Markowitz, columnist for the New York Post, contributor to Spectator USA and the Washington Examiner magazine. Carol, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Take care. Show.com.
Welcome back to the show. Well, the negotiating after the fact has begun with respect to presidential debates. The Joe Biden and his team have agreed in principle to three debates as proposed by the uh, nonpartisan commission on presidential debates. But uh, have the formats all been agreed upon? And even if there's a general agreement, there's nothing like adding preconditions after the fact when the entirety of the goal is to protect Joe Biden from blowing himself up in those debates, isn't it? I mean, think about all that is allied against Donald Trump. Big tech and the social media platforms, which are more powerful than the D.C. press corps standing alone ever was because of their ability to relentlessly and in a hyper-targeted fashion pound people with their point of view, their agitprop, right? Even even doing something as simple and now pedestrian as a Google search, and that is stilted, as we've provided myriad examples of on this show. So big tech plus the D.C. press corps, which is an ever-present ally of the Democrat Socialist nominee for president and every other Democrat Socialist for that matter. So that's built in. Big tech's relatively new, especially it, it, as it becomes more and more pronounced with each passing day, much less year, from 2016 to present. All of the cultural institutions, corporate, most Fortune 500 corporate hierarchies, and the push per the pandemic for mail-in, for mail-in election, voting by mail only, because it worked out so well in Patterson, New Jersey, because it provides for the sort of ballot harvesting we saw in Orange County in 2018. It's a real thing. Just one more example. All of these tracks, the left is running in a parallel fashion simultaneously, tried to take all the guesswork out of it. So the one wild card right now, in addition to whatever President Trump does that they can't control, but they certainly can try and shape the one wild card are the, those debates. So they need to get Joe Biden off that stage or get help to Joe Biden on the stage. Joe Biden standing alone against Trump on that debate stage. And I'm not trying to oversell the uh, Trump performance. We should be underselling it. Joe Biden did well against Paul Ryan in the VP debate in 2012. He's been in politics for 40 years. He's an experienced hand at this. You know, Trump will have his hands full. That's how we should be selling it. So that if Trump does as is anticipated, if Joe does what is as anticipated, then the benefits, the political benefits will be that much more pronounced. Don't oversell and underdeliver, undersell and overdeliver, obviously. So how do they get Biden off that stage or help to Biden on stage? Tom Friedman took one column off from making Flintstones metaphors and uh, offered these trial balloons. Or maybe they're talking points. Maybe these have already been pre-tested among uh, the uh, New York Times set. He writes, I worry about Joe Biden debating Donald Trump, not from Joe Biden's capacity perspective. Of course not. He couldn't disclose that. He worries about it just because of how the format may be unfair to Joe Biden. So here's what you do. Two preconditions uh, that Joe Biden should demand in order to carry forward with the debates, even though they've already been agreed to. First, Biden should declare he will take part in the debate only if Trump releases his tax returns from for 2016 through 2018. Biden has done so, and they're on his website. How about Hunter Biden releasing him, too, since uh, he's the pass-through for Joe? But I digress. I don't care if you release your tax returns or not, although my disposition is all politicians, particularly at that level, senator, governor, members of Congress, or certainly the president, should release their tax returns. So Trump disagrees with me on that. Um, but no debate if Trump doesn't release his tax returns specifically for the years 2016 to 2018, according to Tom Friedman. 
Now, you had the Supreme Court rule today that he may have to comply with the subpoena as far as the Manhattan prosecutors are concerned, but not as far as House Democrats are concerned. So there's no no likelihood. There's little likelihood, I should say, that Trump will be preemptively releasing his tax returns to comply with Tom Friedman's request. Secondly, Biden should insist that a real time fact checking team approved by both candidates be hired by the nonpartisan commission on presidential debates and that 10 minutes before the scheduled conclusion of the debate, this team will report on any misleading statements, phony numbers or outright lies. Either candidate has uttered this way. No one in that massive television audience can go away easily misled. The irony of a New York times columnist worried about uh, members of the American public being massively misled is lost on Tom Friedman in case you were wondering. But, I mean, don't you love these two prongs as uh, the beginning of the argument to get Joe Biden out of the debate or to get Joe Biden help on stage during a debate? Ten minutes uh, going over all the statements that were made. Here's the bottom line. You want to be the president of the United States. You want to be the de facto leader of the free world. Then you have to stand and deliver in the moment. Um, Why should uh, a member of the media... How is it that a member of the media would have a better command of the facts on a particular matter of enough import to be discussed in a presidential debate than the two combatants? And if a member of the press does and one or two or one or both of those combatants doesn't, doesn't that say something about those combatants that should be factored into the decision the American public is making? The same goes with tax returns. Again, I'm a proponent of releasing tax returns. You don't want to release them. Joe Biden can choose to spend the entirety of a a debate or all three debates pillaring President Trump for not releasing his tax returns. Go ahead. Make that the issue on which you want the election decided, if that's so important to you. And President Trump uh, will respond or not respond. You know, that's for uh, the voters to decide, like a jury to decide. No, the the tax returns are not released. He's not compelled to release his tax returns under law. So you factor that into the decision you make. If you want to make your vote, Contingent on the release of his tax returns, then go ahead and do it. If there are more pressing concerns for you, then there are more pressing concerns for you, and there'll be other issues that inform your vote. What do you think? Where do you think this ends up? Three debates? Uh, maybe uh, tries to minimize exposure and just get it down to one or two? Uh, maybe if we have a second wave of cases, you get out of it altogether. It's just there's just too much going on in the, the country. I'm too busy saving lives to debate President Trump, Joe Biden and his flax will say. Which would be, I think, a moment like John McCain in 2008 saying the economy's not my bag during the cratering of the banking system. Not going to come off well. So I still think it's more likely than not that he does the debates because he's going to have to. There won't be some sort of lead he can just play a Dean Smith four corners on and wait it out and, you know, suffer risking a turnover or two because he's got that big of a lead. Uh-uh. And oh, by the way, there's a good column from Carl Rove, not something I often say in the Wall Street Journal about the unforced errors that Democrats are making right now, uh, even though you may not have taken much notice of them. We tried to provide some notice of them here. But of course, the left is focused on, fo- on, on Trump's unforced errors. Some are real and some are just manufactured when they're not present because, of course, they need to continue to run the comm shop for the Biden campaign. We'll see how their arguments against Joe Biden debating President Trump develop over the next couple of months, but they're not going away. They know, at least right now, and I think they think, with all of the infrastructure I described and with some of President Trump's unforced errors 
and with the continued pandemonium and frenzy and fear over the pandemic, as well as and and associated with that, uh, a slower than is possible recovery. They have Trump right where they want him. The only concern they have is Joe Biden on that debate stage. And they want to take the guesswork out of this. All those other things I mentioned they're doing, all those other assets they have, the one vulnerability, Joe Biden on that debate stage. So this isn't over by a long shot. This will go right up to that first debate, that first scheduled debate, I suspect. This is Dan Todd. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Joe Biden gave uh, an interview to a progressive activist named Addie Barkin uh, about uh, police and the justice system, particularly rethinking the prison system. And uh, he made some uh, rather stark comments. Again, if Joe Biden is uh, unwilling to cross the line into the crowd who wants to defund police, then he's standing just on the other side of it. Uh, Eddie Barkin has ALS. So uh, you'll so just so you understand why the question that was posed that you're about to hear is digitized in its presentation. Uh, Addie Barkin asking about the Rashard Brooks case. Wouldn't it have been better if instead of police, there was a wellness counselor who did the DUI stop? Instead of sending two police officers with deadly weapons to that Wendy's drive through in Atlanta, we could have sent a wellness counselor and a tow truck, and then Ray's Hard Brooks would still be alive today. And his three daughters would still have their daddy. Are you open to that kind of reform? Yes, I propose that kind of reform. We need significantly more help. That's why I call for significant increase in funding for mental health clinics and mental health providers. We are desperately in need of that now. One of the things I've been pushing for in our administration, we put together the ability and a bill that I wrote to make sure that we can look at pattern and practice of police departments, go in and get all the records and find out what they're doing. Or maybe DUI is no longer an offense and just you're going to tow your car and then you just go home and you'll have to pick up your car from the tow yard or maybe I'll just drive you home. I, I don't know exactly what the new wellness counselor approach to policing exactly entails. I'm not sure Joe Biden does either. Uh, But it certainly prompts some questions. Do you think somebody who's intoxicated uh, and uh, resisted arrest in one case would resist the reasoning of a wellness counselor in another? Huh. Uh, Joe Biden on no knock warrants. There's a whole range of things that we can do. The idea of no knock warrants for drug cases is bizarre. We don't need that. Bizarre. Uh, Do you want, if you secure a warrant from a judge for, say, a drug house, do you want to give them advanced warning, assuming there are multiple people in the house, assuming that they're probably armed, assuming they might shoot first and have the element of surprise if you knock? It's a little bit more complicated than just the Breonna Taylor case, as unfortunate as that was. 
on uh, surplus military equipment making its way to local police? Uh, surplus military equipment for law enforcement. They don't need that. The last thing you need is an up-armored Humvee coming into a neighborhood. It's like the military invading. They don't know anybody. They become the enemy. They're supposed to be protecting these people. That's a memorable phrase. In addition to that, I'm sorry, the police who patrol those neighborhoods patrol in uh, or, or employ some surplus military equipment and you no longer know them? What does military equipment have to do with the police officer's relationship with the uh, neighborhoods, the, the residents of the neighborhoods they patrol? They either have a relationship or they don't. They're not invading any more than they are when they're in a patrol car. And by the way, when the National Guard are called in during, uh, I don't know, uh, for example, uh, when there's unrest as there has been, as there has been, are they an invading force? Are they enemies because they're wearing fatigues and helmets and Humvees? Uh, Lastly, on the prison system, uh, the two features of our prison system, it's part restorative It's part retributive, restoration for the victim, victim's family, uh, retributive in part uh, for as punishment for the offender, disincentive to offend again. And and also to some extent restorative for the offender in the hopes that there will uh, be a change in behavior upon release. Joe Biden thinks uh, that retributive part's a problem. One of the things that we also need to be doing is fundamentally changing the way, and I've been pushing it for years, changing the way we deal with our prison system. It should be a rehabilitation system, not a punishment system. We're going to make sure that you're qualified for every single right you had before you went to prison if you served your time. And that means that you're entitled to Pell Grants to go to school. You're entitled to job training programs. You're entitled to housing you're entitled to every federal program out there. Sounds like uh, Joe Biden wants to make prison sort of a mandatory extended corporate retreat. We'll start right there when we return with the Manhattan Institute's Rafael Mangual. I need you tonight. I'm not sleeping. There's something about you, girl. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're now pleased to be joined by the Manhattan Institute's Raphael Manguel. Raphael, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. What about uh, wellness counselors as... uh, on the street uh, interdictors of, of suspected criminal conduct. Do you think that's a good idea? Uh, yeah, no, I, I think there's, uh, there's likely quite a bit that can go wrong with those sorts of situations. I mean, one of the reasons that we send police to these kinds of calls uh, is the reality that a lot of times calls that seem minor can turn quite violent. Um, we know this. We've 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 seen it on video. Uh, we've seen it happen. We've seen police officers lose their lives in simple traffic stops. Um, you know, being being shot as they uh, approach a car. The idea that we should send unarmed counselors and that we can sort of effectively deal with all these situations uh, without police, I, I don't think has much basis in in, in anything other than ideology. 
uh, certainly not in the data, certainly not in the available literature. Um, the other reason that we send police to some of these calls is because police understand that their job is to root out crime in a kind of proactive way. And one of the ways that they do that is they use the justifications of a, quote, lower level offense like DUI or something like that to, to root out those more serious offenses. And when those offenses are uncovered, they can then affect an arrest that benefits society to a much greater degree than would just enforcing that low level offense, right? So if you pull someone over for a broken taillight, you're able to get their ID. And if it turns out that they've got an open warrant, now you can take that guy off the street. A counselor is not gonna have that kind of ability, which means that we're gonna lose out on those benefits that are produced from those interactions when we send police. Uh, Zach Bochamp uh, has this extensive piece over at Vox.com about what the police really believe. And he opens his piece by citing Arthur Reiser, who's a former cop, who now heads the criminal justice program at the R Street Institute. Uh, yeah. He uh, uh, says, Riser, the whole thing about the bad apple, I hate when people say that the bad apple rots the barrel. Until we do something about the rotten barrel, it doesn't matter how many good effing apples you put in it. To uh, extend this tortured uh, metaphor, is it uh, a rotten barrel or is it uh, a few rotten apples? Oh, I definitely think it's a few rotten apples. And look, I know Arthur. I think he's a good guy, and I think he means well. We actually had dueling uh, uh, law review articles in the Federalist Society Review um, on the issue of police reform. Um, I would encourage people to look those up. Um, mine was, was, was titled Police Use of Force and the Practical Limits of Popular Reform Proposals, a response to Riser and Mooney, um, Emily Mooney's his colleague. And the, the basic point here is that I, I don't buy the, the logical argument that the entire institution can be deemed rotten by virtue of a few apples. You would never apply that reasoning to any other kind of group of people um, because it's, it's logically fallacious to do so, right? The reality is, is that police violence, police misuse of force is extremely, extremely rare. Um, for us to be able to sort of draw broad conclusions about policing as an institution from those statistically isolated incidents, I think is actually at the root of why uh, police find themselves so demonized in American society. I think buying into exactly those kinds of arguments that embolden uh, the sort of radical activists who, you know, are sort of in this for entirely the wrong reasons. You just have, you know, an opposition to law enforcement and sort of, <laughs> you know, I, I guess are anarchists at core. Um, and, and it really gives them a, a lot of power. And I, I'm not surprised that Fox sort of jumped on that. Uh, uh, to kind of write that thing piece. Yeah, Bochamp goes on to essentially argue that there's a siege mentality among police. He writes, the ideology holds that the world is a profoundly dangerous place. Officers are conditioned to see themselves as constantly in danger, and the only way to guarantee survival is to dominate the citizens they're supposed to protect. The police believe they're alone in this fight. Police ideology holds that officers are under siege by criminals and not understood or respected by the broader citizenry. These beliefs, combined with widely held racial stereotypes, push officers toward violent and racist behavior during intense and stressful street interactions. And that uh, seems to be um, uh, a bit of projection by uh, Bochamp about ideology, because that is completely an ideological statement, especially when you bump it up against the t statistics that you recount in your piece in The Wall Street Journal last month about the infrequency in which police use force of any kind, 
even in those intense and stressful street interactions that Beauchamp is referencing. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, police are one of the sort of most restrained uh, uh, groups that, that, that we know of. I mean, you know, police officers, we've seen the videos, right, of, of police officers having, you know, protesters scream in their face and having crowds gather while they're, you know, trying to effect an arrest and having people scream in the 70s at them and throw bottles. Yet, the vast majority of the time, police are able to sort of control themselves and keep control of the situation and also do their jobs at the same time. And we see this in the data, right? And police make more than 10 million arrests a year. In 0.003% of those arrests is uh, deadly force used with a firearm, right? And we know that in more than 99% of arrests, police are able to get people into handcuffs and into custody without the use of any physical force whatsoever. And then we know that in 98% of the cases in which they do use physical force, there is no discernible injury uh, to the suspect, nothing beyond, you know, a, a, a couple of bruises or some scrapes, right? That, that, those numbers do not indicate a, a, an ideology in which police sort of see themselves as occupying forces and in which, you know, describes the public that they are serving as the enemy, right? I think we would see that ideology sort of manifested in much more troubling uh, violence numbers. And I think the, 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 the reality that we ignore here in making these arguments is what's at the root of one thing that, that, that both champs said that I do agree with, which is that police probably do feel like they're alone in this. Um, and, and that's because people like him and, and others who continue to sort of beat this drum about this narrative um, have led the public to that conclusion. He is Rafael Mangual, fellow and deputy director of legal policy at the Manhattan Institute. Rafael, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me back. back and uh, close the show and close the week for me with uh, Powerline Blog's John Hinderaker sitting in for me tomorrow. So you want to listen to John. He's always good. But uh, let's uh, close out the week with a bit of silliness that isn't presented as silliness, but from the files of everything is racist and everything is sexist. How about traffic signals? Racist. From David Kaufman over at uh, Medium. A few months back before COVID-19 kept us in our homes and George Floyd made us take to the streets, I was Walking with a friend, her daughter, my twin sons. My friend is white. I'm not. Something I'd never given a second thought to until we reached a crosswalk. Remember, honey, she said to her daughter as we waited for the light to turn green. We need to wait for the little white man to appear before we can cross the street. I realize that white people like to exert control over nearly everything everyone does, I thought. But since when did this literally include trying to cross the street? Because the visage on the traffic signal, you know. At the crosswalk to cross white 
a, a subtle example of the uh, caginess of the white supremacists, these shadowy figures that uh, insinuate racism everywhere you go, even when you cross the street. And uh, sexism is everywhere. Leslie Kern is an unhinged feminist author. Upper thrusting buildings ejaculating into the sky. Do cities have to be so sexist is the title of her piece. I'm familiar with Eye in the Sky, Alan Parsons Project. Not familiar with buildings ejaculating into the sky, but uh, that's quite graphic. Glass ceilings and phallic towers, mean streets and dark alleys, road names and statues of men. From the physical to the metaphorical, the city is filled with reminders of masculine power. And yet we rarely talk of the urban landscape as an active participant in gender inequality. This is not from the Babylon Bee. The grand white patriarchal conspiracy theorists. And uh, she traces the history for us so we don't have to. As far back as 1977, an American poet and professor of architecture, of course she was, named Dolores Hayden, wrote an article with the explosive headline, Skyscraper Seduction, Skyscraper Rape. Skyscraper Seduction actually was the name of my high school band. It was an air supply tribute band. Skyscraper Seduction, Skyscraper Rape anthropomorphizing skyscrapers and of course making them racist men or uh, <laughs> violent men predatory men it is this is just a remarkable piece i'm not going to give it more time than it deserves i think i've already given you the punchlines but she does cite other cities that are transforming themselves in a way that american cities should consider for example in the aspern district of vienna all the streets and public spaces are named after women in tokyo trains have carriages set aside at particular times for women in Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, female street vendors have seen their safety and economic prospects improve with the building of secure permanent mini markets that include space for breastfeeding and so on and so forth. You get it. Everything is racist and everything is sexist. Tear down all the buildings. Forget just the statues. All the buildings need to come down and be redesigned by women and people of color. All the traffic signals, obviously, as well. Rename all the streets, not just reselect all the persons worthy of tribute worthy to be statuized. That's where we're at, folks. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Again, please uh, join my friend John Hindraker from PowerlineBlog.com as he sits in for me tomorrow. Thank you. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.